You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 130, Dr. Becca Johnson, Trauma Sensitivity. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Good morning or afternoon or late night, wherever you are in the world listening to this podcast. We are glad that you are with us because we have a special guest today. Her name is Dr. Becca Johnson. She's the International Program Director at Rescue Freedom International, and she has been a trainer, counselor, consulting psychologist, clinical director, and aftercare director for numerous anti-trafficking and child abuse organizations. And in her work now with Rescue Freedom, and Rescue Freedom is uh, one of our partners with the Faith Alliance Against Slavery and Trafficking. Now she partners with over 25 safe homes in eight countries. And it's important to listen to the countries that she's working in. Of course, here in the U.S., India, Spain, Nepal, Moldova, Thailand, Bangladesh, and Tajikistan. And she provides training and support on trauma-sensitive, trauma-focused care. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast, Dr. Becca. Well, thank you very much. Um, I was fascinated when we were having a fast call, Faith Alliance Against Slavery and Trafficking call recently, and we were talking about trauma-informed, which in in the human trafficking uh, community, being trauma-informed, creating trauma-informed environments, this is a buzzword, um, and everybody has a different training on it. And you used a word that... I it just captured my imagination because making a trauma-informed community is a huge task. So I like the idea of trauma-sensitive. Would you um, talk to us about how you developed that particular strategy in your work? Well, thank you. I agree with what you said, that it is such a buzzword, and it's so... Um, well accepted in this field that we all talk about an agency, a person, everyone needs to be trauma-informed. And that is accurate and that it is important. But what I have found is that's just, I guess I would say, head knowledge. And as people learn about trauma and learn to work and be sensitive with those who have been so complexly and multiply traumatized, that it is important that they also engage their heart. So when I use the word trauma-sensitive instead of trauma-informed, I want people to, to engage their heart and empathy, not just their head, and they have this knowledge about what is trauma, how it affects people, but that they truly understand it as much as they can from a, a heart level as well. So that's that's how I came up with the term, and that's the term I use all the time. So can you give us sort of a breakdown of how that might work 
um, when you're in identifying, first of all, we'll look at identification and intervention and then aftercare. So let's look at three phases. Of, uh, first, we have to identify a victim and engaging in having a conversation. They don't want to self-disclose. So it feels like trauma sensitivity is a huge piece of that section of recovering a victim of human trafficking. How would that be? Um, what would that look like? Well, for me, when I've worked um, directly with victims or uh, when I help train others, I believe that as they understand more of what's in the head and heart, you know, what's going on in the emotions, what's going on in the thinking processes, um, you know, what victims are thinking and feeling, that makes, I believe, outreach more effective or when you're talking to a victim. It's just because they, it breaks down barriers because you understand as much as you can, what they're going through. And so I love it when, I, when I'm when i speaking to a, a survivor and sometimes I am able to, to articulate for them what they couldn't for themselves. When I say, have you often felt that, you know, it's your fault? Have you, you know, I bet you sometimes might think this um, and just share some of those very common um, again, thoughts and feelings. And it is wonderful to see them light up and say, yes, means someone understands. And so I find the trauma sensitivity, you know, I mean, it is an knowledge and awareness like trauma informed, but it goes beyond. And so, it's like I said, in my training, I, I try and get at the heart. and I do um, activities and exercises that engage um, people in an understanding at a deeper level, at an empathy level, um, what victims are experiencing. I, I really appreciate the use of the word empathy because it goes so much deeper than sympathy. So when, when you use the word outreach, um, I've been really shy a little bit of doing just outreach where I go out into the street and, and talk to um, potential victims. Um, I'm not sure how to approach them. But if I use a, a trauma-sensitive approach that you're talking about, how would I in, begin a conversation with maybe a woman standing on a street corner? The most important thing in outreach, I think, and maybe not the most important, but one of the important things is that we are survivor-informed. When I talk to some of my friends who are survivors and they, they hear about outreach programs, you know, people that do go out to the street to talk to people, um, you know, potential victims or women that seem like they are victims. And they say that so many good hearted people are getting it wrong because they don't understand um, really what is going on for that person. And the dynamics of, and sex trafficking and, and human trafficking are so different around the world that how I approach a woman in India will be very different than how I approach a woman on the streets in the United States. To be trauma sensitive when you're doing outreach is also being culturally sensitive mm-hmm. and knowing where they're coming from and not making assumptions because some people, they have the, the trauma knowledge or 
this is what's happening and they don't really understand the dynamics of how it's affecting the person. So trauma sensitive likes to incorporate the culturally sensitive um, and other factors that, that make us, like I said, more empathetic and not just uh, this is, this is how you do it. I, so I, I love back, that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that, you know, from the perspective of my friends that are survivors, that, for example, there was a program that did outreach and they found that they were, their response rate was about 2% of the people they were reaching. Then finally, they, they thought to ask a survivor and say, you know, what are we doing wrong or what could we do better? And the survivor gave them some very helpful um, hints and their their response rate went up 40%. Wow. And so we need to make sure that we are survivor informed and that's how we become more trauma sensitive. That it's not just information in, in books or reports, but that survivors are telling us what it is like for them, what reality is out on the streets or out in the brothels or in the massage parlors or the nail salons or whatever location they are, that survivors are the ones telling us how to be more sensitive. And so much of what I share, you know, I've passed by my, my survivor friends and said, you know, is this okay? Is this offensive? Is this helpful? And I think one of the biggest compliments I ever feel or ever get is when a survivor says, you get it. Wow. So, so I, I got stuck on the um, getting it wrong phrase. And so just a quick <laughs> look at what survivors have informed you to understand our, how we, with good intentions, get it wrong. Give us a couple of examples of the getting it wrong part. Well, some of the obvious um, ones would be when we say to a survivor um, or a victim who is maybe just uh, during an outreach or maybe they've just left the situation, but to assume that they also agree with you that the trafficker or the pimp or the perpetrator is a terrible, horrible person. Because especially in America where we have more grooming as opposed to other countries where it's more outright deception and being sold, um, the, for many of them, they, they love the trafficker. They, or it might be a family member as is, um, is often is the case. Or it might be, you know, they still view the person as a boyfriend. So a common mistake is to start talking negatively about the people in her life or the perpetrator, because that will alienate right away. So being, you know, sensitive and aware of that, that's the first thing that comes to mind. I think, I think that particular point, I've heard the same thing from survivors, not just of um, sex trafficking or human trafficking, but of domestic violence survivors. Um, And when we speak negatively about the perpetrator and I've been told there are two different um, responses. First, the one that you mentioned as far as they, they're in some sort of relationship and they care at some level about that person. But in the, in the healing process, as they're moving out of that unhealthy relationship, when, when we speak negatively about the perpetrator, um, the survivor explained to me that that just makes me feel stupid that I didn't see those things 
And here you are, um, a Monday morning quarterback for international listeners. That's like after the game, you're going to say what the what the, the player should have done. Um, it makes me feel like I'm not very smart. I'm, I must be even stupid that I fell for that. And so it isn't a very respectful track. It's not very sensitive. Yes. Um, well, and for... T- and I always say that I think domestic violence um, victims and and people that work in that field are uh, have a much better understanding of the dynamics of that that trauma bond between the perpetrator and victim that that most people we d- we don't get. And so I I always like to honor those who work in domestic violence because they. They get that component that most people don't, that so many people see, and maybe here's some more examples coming to mind, is, you know, when when a victim is, uh, I, well, I remember recently, um, well, maybe not that recent, maybe about four years ago on a, a talk show, the, the talk show host said to the victim, which they were interviewing, and said, well, why didn't you run? Mm. Why didn't you say something? Why didn't you go to the police? And again, it's that dynamic that people don't understand because we shake our heads and say, well, why didn't I just do this? When you are in that trauma bond, when you are in that coercive, um, and maybe to use an old term, brainwashing situation, um, that's not possible. And you don't see that as a possibility of leaving or getting out or um, because of that bond, and so I think one of the one of the main things too, especially in America, with the grooming and that trauma bonding, that that's a key factor we need to know to be more trauma sensitive. So it's can, not just a matter of captivity. Can you give us um, the components more from a clinical perspective of what a trauma bond is? When I use the word trauma bond, a lot of times people think of it in terms of that Stockholm syndrome where a captive, I I like to call it captive compliance, Mm -hmm. Um, another term I developed, of using saying that this person is captive, whether it's physical or emotional. In the case of human trafficking, it is often that virtual or that emotional captivity. And the that that bond is so strong that well it's it's such a strong emotional bond that it's it's not easily broken because the person believes that this is as good as it gets this is who i am this and mm. and, and actually if you look at the coercion or isolation wheel it was developed by people i think in the domestic violence field yeah. of what it takes to control someone and you know that isolation, that uh, being nice occasionally, and you know the different um, aspects. And I'm sorry, I don't have them memorized to oh, share okay. here. We'll now, put it in the show notes. But, uh, the coercion and isolation, um, are, and some people might call it the domestic violence stages, but are components. But the it is so strong and, and most of us don't uh, understand it. And so we, we are insensitive when we, we ask such questions. 
that I mentioned earlier. So let me I'm, ask I'm you. I'm not sure if that answered your question. No, it does. It's perfect. And and when we're when I do training in hospitals, because my background's pediatric nursing, and I talk about this with um, with like emergency room nurses recently, I, this is the question I was asked. And, and she's like, I looked at all the list of things for identification, but then he was so good to her. I can't imagine that he's trafficking her. And, and mm. so, so that intervention piece, uh, she decided not to go down the road to ask the next two questions because it appeared so genuine. So how do we overcome that if we're being trauma sensitive? Um, and here's a victim in your ER, in your walk-in pregnancy crisis center, or or even a doctor's office, um, how do you how do you do an intervention and give her um, a, a way out when it appears that everything is just wonderful? Well, I have to say, from from what I understand, that's rare. That's unusual um, because often when he accompanies her. Um, and using the he as a pimp, as a perpetrator, most of the the situations I've heard of or been told about are that he's more controlling, domineering, won't leave her sight, answers questions for her, very controlling. And so to have someone who's loving and positive, um, that seems more unusual to me than what I've been hearing. However, I know it's possible. I think that it's important to realize that um, there is always those external views uh, or external shows of, you know, I'm a good guy. We're actually statistics and again, uh, real life situations say that, well, but he's beating her and using her and exploiting her all of the other time to, to trauma sensitive is to say, this is, um, I'm, I'm aware that you love him and he says he loves you, but are there other things going on that make this not um, a, a pretty picture? Yeah, it's not a healthy situation. Well, and, and I, I'm always struggling with the cognitive dissonance that the victim develops in order to survive so that they, they sort of, their their picture, we're all looking at the same situation, but they see it differently, right? Yes, and and that's why, especially victims that have been groomed, it come from a perspective of a, a supposedly loving relationship. They they have to believe that this really is good, and he means well, and he's trying harder. And all the things they have to tell themselves to convince themselves because of that dissonance and that, um, you know, the reality isn't always, you know, I love you and then hits and beats you or I love you, but then sells you. Um, and so they have to try and justify or rationalize, you know, all of that in their mind. But I guess I was thinking something you said earlier, Sandra, uh, about how they they come to the point of, having to convince themselves that part of that is because the the trafficker, again, with these dynamics in the United States of that grooming, um, they, they do have to convince themselves. But part of that is because traffickers usually are saying, well, you know, you chose this. 
and you know you could leave, although that's not accurate and not true. But um, there is that sense of I have to believe this because the truth is too painful. The truth is that then I must be a horrible person. The truth then is that I did get conned or scammed and I am stupid, like you said earlier. And so it's almost better to to go on with the, well, he means well and he wants to be better than the reality. And so when we work with survivors that have first come out, it takes a while because they, you know, first I, I, I like to think, say, you know, they're the victims but they have to see themselves as a victim. And once they do, they have to face the reality of, I got used and abused. And at first there's the shame of that, you know, even more shame than the shame of what they were forced to do. But then we have to move through that to, yeah, it's okay to be mad and angry at the perpetrator. Wow. And, and some survivors have shared with me that, one of the hardest things to communicate to um, some of their caregivers is I'm just a little bit mad at God that this happened to me. Yes. And I can imagine um, I'm speaking from personal experience and maybe I'm going to just get some free consulting on the air as a caregiver. Um, Trauma sensitive for me too is how do I take care of myself when I have to walk away from a situation that clearly needs intervention, but because they, the, the, the victim hasn't processed this and isn't ready to leave, um, I don't have any control over that, Dr. Becca. Yes, and that is one of the hard and sad and horrible parts of of what we do is is knowing that we can't reach or change or inter, intervene for everyone. And it is hard. And, and that's where, you know, we, we do get vicarious trauma, meaning, you know, we get traumatized by working with the traumatized. It is hard for us and we need self-care. And we need to be aware that little bits of everyone's trauma does seep in, even the ones that get out but especially the ones that don't. And we had a situation in uh, Cambodia with an organization that they, they were able to get two um, young women out of their uh, exploited, sexually exploitation situation and told them, we have a program for you, we have a home for you, we can help you. And, and the response was, we can't go with you right now because we have to check with our families to see if that is okay because we have to send money home to them. And that's a dynamic there in America. If you say we have a program for you, they're thinking maybe, you know, get out of my life. I don't need you. I'm fine. And as I said before, that dynamics. And it's hard when you're working with someone and they, they reject the truth or the hope. And we just always pray that, well, that's a seed planted or that's a, that's a first thought of maybe there is hope because for so many victims, the idea that hope exists um, is, is so far from, from what their reality is. They've given up on hope. They feel dreamless and hopeless 
And so we get to come in and, and give hope, whether they respond to it then or maybe later. So, yes, going back to what you were saying, you know, self being aware of how much we can take and making sure we have um, measures in place that keep us strong and going and um, healthy so that we don't become so overwhelmed that we become unable to help. And how would I be able to support one of my colleagues that maybe is um, experiencing sliding down into that hopeless pit because they just don't see that they're being effective? How could I be better about that? Mm -hmm. You know, some of the best ways to help fight against vicarious trauma, um, you know, when the the helpers get traumatized, is is to have someone to talk to, um, to have a listening ear, and and also, of course, for the person to make sure that they do other activities, that that is not the whole focus, because how can we help others if we then become uh, traumatized and incapacitated emotionally ourselves? So it's important for helpers to to keep healthy. And so uh, those are some of the top two. Make sure you do activities that are enjoyable and non-related, and also to make sure um, to have people you can talk with and share and debrief and cry with and uh, let it all out. Those would be the top two. And of course, you know, making sure you eat healthy and sleep well and, and all of those things, because if those aren't in place, then again, that's self-sabotaging um, your effectiveness as a caregiver. And I think that is an important piece of this trauma sensitive care for victims, for survivors, and for the community that does this work together. And um, as as we're wrapping up, I want our listeners to know that you are a prolific author. You've um, authored books on child abuse for their sake, on guilt, good guilt, bad guilt. I'm going to order that one today. And anger, overcoming emotions that destroy. And you wrote that with Chip Ingram. And I think you're also working on um, some additional books. Uh, you want to talk about that? Well, thank you. I, I'm excited about the new books that will be coming out in the, in, within the next year. One is, well, one is uh, an abuse I've been wanting to write for years. I've walked alongside, um, had the privilege of walking alongside many people who have been abused. And so this book is a kind of a workbook and it's a book for healing, a book for helping. If you're a relative or a caregiver or a professional, you can also benefit from the book. And it walks a person through the healing process um, by them telling their story and what happened in a non, well, hopefully non-re-traumatizing way. So that's one. But the other is one for survivors um, or victims of sex trafficking. I'm co-writing with a um, a survivor friend of mine who's just dynamic and I'm excited for that book to come out and we'd like it to be used by by those doing outreach, by those who have programs to become more trauma sensitive or, or sensitive to the issues and the dynamics, but also that can be given to survivors to help them on that journey towards healing. So that's one for survivors um, of sex trafficking. 
And another one is on um, written by three of us, a survivor, myself as a psychologist, you know, specialist, um, trauma specialist, and then a CEO of an organization. Um, we're co-writing a book on helping people understand where they can best serve in the human trafficking field because so many people are jumping in. I want to help. I want to help. But sometimes the way they're helping or where they're helping is not the most effective and they don't understand the whole scope of possibilities of ways to get involved. So that book, um, we're hoping serves the greater good in a sense that we're going to help people be more effective. So that's, that's pretty exciting. Oh, that's great. I'm looking forward to that. That will certainly leverage our resources here and around the world. And Dr. Becca, um, I'm looking forward to you being at Insure Justice here at Vanguard next March. And we will offer some workshops um, that are specific to your expertise and will engage our community. And as our community gains more competency, I believe that we will have the right people to put on the teams and, and leverage those resources so that we can do more um, in reaching and identifying and intervening and recovering victims here and in other countries. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And I look forward to um, carrying on this conversation and inviting you back on the Ending Human Trafficking podcast. Well, thank you so much. And I just want to say how much I appreciate all that you are doing um, with the, the variety of, of involvements that you have there. And so thank you for what you're doing. Oh, this is great. Thanks, everybody. And thank you, Sandy, and thank you, Dr. Johnson, for your expertise. And as always, we are looking forward to hearing from you with your questions about today's conversation or anything relating to human trafficking. Two ways for you to reach out to us. You can email us at gcwj at vanguard.edu. That stands for the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University. And you can also reach us by phone, 714-966-6360. By the way, if you are a Facebook user, we do have a Facebook page as well. It's a great way to keep up with what Sandy's up to and where she's traveling in the world. Just on Facebook, search for the Global Center for Women and Justice and you'll find us. Have a great week and we'll see you in two weeks. Take care. Take care.